Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. As a part of our winter break releases, uh, we're sharing some recordings from the EMDR supplement, an advanced EMDRIA training that we created to support EMDR clinicians in their study and practice of EMDR, no matter if you're just starting out with EMDR or you've been practicing with it for years. This episode will feature content specific to case conceptualization for EMDR. Based in our case conceptualization model called Somatic Integration and Processing, or SIP, we walk through various components of the traditional EMDR protocol that can be supported and deepened with a thorough and intentional case conceptualization approach. One of my favorite case conceptualization scholars once wrote that every clinician has a case conceptualization approach, but they might not know until they're asked. While case conceptualization is something a lot of us haven't thought much about since graduate school, we believe that second to building and attuning to the intersubjective space of the therapeutic relationship, case conceptualization has the biggest impact on treatment outcomes and client and therapist satisfaction. Throughout this episode, you'll hear some history of case conceptualization in EMDR and the ways SIP can support clinicians to incorporate their existing wisdom and knowledge into a system that integrates and organizes existing theory and training material into a succinct model for case conceptualization. We then apply these ideas into history-taking, treatment approaches, and target sequencing. We're very excited to share the EMDR supplement with you, and we hope you enjoy the episode. One last thing before you dive into the episode If you've enjoyed what you've heard from the Notice That podcast, please consider rating the podcast and leaving a review in your favorite podcast player. This is one of the most direct and impactful ways that you can help the podcast grow and to support more clinicians from around the world in their EMDR journey. All right. We hope you enjoy the episode. And as always, be sure to check out our website, connectbeyondhealing.com, for upcoming training and consultation offerings and to engage in the Beyond Healing community. Enjoy. Today we're going to be talking about the importance of case conceptualization. An accurate case conceptualization includes a precise understanding of what's going on in our client's life. And it also includes an understanding of what's going on between us and the client. 
It incorporates new findings at every level, both for who they are as an individual and how they have relationships with other people. It's a collaborative process of formulating an accurate diagnostic assessment over time, and it seeks to inform the therapeutic alliance's choice of an evidence-based treatment plan and the interventions that we'll use. A client's case conceptualization strength and quality increases over the life of their practice. A marked difference between an experienced novice and beginning therapist is their explicit articulation of the common factors of successful case conceptualization. These factors have been linked to increasing a client's understanding of their work, increasing our confidence in selecting appropriate modalities and ways of treating our clients, and really benefiting the overall health of our therapeutic alliance with our clients. Now I'm thinking as you say all of this in my work as a consultant, um, the difference in working with someone who feels really confident and strong in case conceptualization compared to someone who doesn't really understand what's going on in the case as a whole really impacts the kind of work that we're doing with our clients. Mm -hmm. So to take the time and really invest in thoroughly understanding why is the client presenting in the way they are today? How have they become who they are? And why is it that their systems are processing their life experience in that way? Can help us gather so much more information and really just set us up for a more um, intentional and smooth processing once we get to that phase of treatment. Mm -hmm. Part of how here at Beyond Healing Institute, we are conceptualizing cases is through our case conceptualization theory, somatic integration and processing. And in this process, we look at three really fundamental theoretical approaches and how they work together to really support the way in which we can see our clients and the, how their history has influenced their present day presentations. So one of those that we want to give kind of a brief overview to is attachment and neurodevelopment. We're no longer looking at the difference between nature versus nurture and that debate back and forth, but more so understanding that it's a dance between the two. It's nature and nurture, both influence how someone shows up in the present. So it's from the moment of conception throughout pregnancy, birth and the beginning of, is the beginning of personality development, and that continues throughout their entire development. The genetic lineage and active experiences begin to blend together. Our brains develop in an experience-dependent fashion throughout the lifespan. So similar to the metaphor or visual of a house um, with a roof that's built on top, we're looking at that foundational level of those past life experiences, set the client up or set the structure up for either something that feels fragile and weak or potentially really solid and strong. So looking at that foundation being past life experiences, from that, the structure of the home is built upon that and stand on the walls, there's the roof, which is where we see the concept of self as well as the concept of other. So that roof and how strong that structure is is dependent on those early life experiences. And we see that same thing with our clients. Early life experiences lay the foundation on which later structural development will unfold, giving way to the emergence of self and other concepts. Mm -hmm. So the second lens that we like to look through when we're considering how to conceptualize cases with our clients is the lens of somatic psychology. 
And right now in the world of psychology, somatic psychology, somatic experiencing, somatic therapies are very in vogue, right? We're all talking about it because there is a uh, awareness that without paying attention to the body, we're sort of missing a key ingredient of working with a human being as a whole human being. And one of the funny things that we like to say here at Beyond Healing is that we're not a brain on a stick. And that's where somatic psychology comes in. Remembering that every bit of us from the neck down also matters in the therapeutic process. So somatic psychology helps us to correct our dualistic thinking about mind and body and helps us really remember that the mind and body are the same thing. There is no difference between them. One cannot exist without the other. So when we're thinking about our clients, we're going to be including the information that is coming from below, coming up from the body to communicate to us and to the client about what their life experiences have really meant to them. So any separation between mind and body is really just an illusion of language. And this is something that we have to help our clients uh, learn. And we as therapists have to spend some time getting used to really thinking about the body as a valuable source of information and as the individual self, right? That we are our body, our body is us. There is no difference between them. And having this awareness allows us to see our work with our clients through the lens of the body so that we can include the body's intelligence, Our body is equipped to heal itself in almost all situations, and we want to partner with that intelligence when we're assisting our clients in healing from trauma. We learn from the body by learning how to pay attention to the activations of the nervous system and how it shows up in the cells and the muscles and the the flushing of our skin. We want to notice all of that so that we can be benefiting from that information. We also want to pay attention to working body to body, remembering that we as a therapist also have a body, right? And so when we're sitting with our clients, noticing how our bodies are interacting with each other and listening to the information that's coming up from my body as well is a valuable source of information. So the nervous system does not easily differentiate between a true threat of bodily harm versus a social or emotional threat. And that gets really relevant in somatic psych because one of the things that can be very confusing to clients and sometimes to therapists is why do we have such intense body reactions in social interactions? And that's because we as mammals don't differentiate between being separated and isolated from other human beings and potentially dying or being in danger. And so our bodies have big reactions to social and relational trauma. And being able to conceptualize that way helps us make sense of what we're seeing with our clients and helps our clients to experience a lot more self-compassion for why they're having the reactions that they are. And when we're able to work with an awareness of trauma's direct impact on the body and on our nervous system, it assists us in guiding our clients to be able to actually release what is stored in their body and release the trauma and the distress that has been there sometimes for years. And it can really lend um, a lot of power to whatever modality we're using, and especially in EMDR. So as we're looking at attachment, neurodevelopment, somatic psychology, the third lens that we want to highlight, which is one that you're likely very familiar with, is the adaptive information processing. So this is the approach that is very well known in EMDR, and you probably learned about it in depth at your basic training, hopefully. Um, But we'll give a quick review just as a kind of refresher and reminder as we continue to look at that as a key piece in conceptualizing cases for our clients. So the AIP model states that most symptoms and struggles come directly from past life experiences. 
These experiences set into motion a pattern of affect, behavior, cognition, and identity structures that continue then throughout our lifetime unless something intervenes. Our experiences are held in our brain and body in state-specific form. So this means that our body and brain actually remembers the sensory elements of the experience along with the story that we tell ourselves about the experience. So it's the combination of the felt sense along with the story. The sensory elements of our memory can be activated in the present. This can happen unintentionally, that common term that we hear of getting triggered, but often is referred to, like I said, as often referred to as triggering. But we can also utilize that activation intentionally in the therapeutic process. So in that, we refer to that as activation of a target memory. So we're specifically selecting a memory, bringing it to the surface by activating all of its stored elements so that then we can move into reprocessing and storing it differently. When the past is activated by something in the present, our nervous system responds with the same response patterns that it used during the original trauma. So here at Beyond Healing, we draw from each of these three theoretical approaches to conceptualize our cases and really have a big picture idea of what's going on with our clients so that we can know how best to assist them. And when we lay these three theories and lenses over each other, what emerges is this very holistic picture that clearly shows our therapeutic path. And we call that somatic integration and processing, which is the case conceptualization model that we teach here. And we find Find it profoundly helpful when conceptualizing cases with EMDR. So talking a little bit about the history taking process, there's so many different tools and techniques that you can use to collect a thorough history of your client. But an important thing that we want to make note of is it's an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. The eight phases carve out a space for history taking, but it's something that we want to be circling back to regularly throughout the process and always adding to our understanding of their history and the way in which we're conceptualizing this case. So while we do a significant amount of history taking at the very beginning of our relationship, the process never stops. Mm-hmm. In fact, as the safety um, that the client is feeling with us increases, the more history will become present. There's also history that gets discovered just through getting to know the client where it comes less in the form of storytelling and more present in how does their body respond to the relationship of the therapist and the client, how are they handling life experiences outside of the therapy room, all of those pieces can be collected as you know more information on the client's history to help us understand the case. We encourage clients to disclose only what they feel safe and ready to disclose and never push them into uncovering material that they don't feel safe to uncover or to share with us. So as that safety increases and they become increasingly more comfortable and feel safer to share with us, then more history gets revealed. It's important that we're always listening to what's not being said along with what they choose to say or to share to focus on. I find myself personally focusing significantly less on the words that they say Mm -hmm. and the stories that they tell of their history um, and more on how their body is responding as being greater indications of what their history may have been like. Mm -hmm. I agree. So where we can use things like a timeline or genogram to get history, 
All of that information is very important, but so much is revealed in what they don't say or how their body responds that can help us fill in some of those gaps. Mm -hmm. Even the way in which they share their story um, may determine certain things about how they experienced those events. So some life events, they may talk about them as if, you know, they were positive or no big deal. Others, they may have an adaptive story wrapped around it, but you watch their body respond in a way that you can tell that there's still activation stored there. Mm-hmm. So we're always looking at what did their system have to do to adapt to the circumstances that they were born into or that they faced throughout their development. As we see these adaptations, we want to further understand when and why did those adaptations get created? Why were they necessary? And as you've heard us talk before, we see all symptoms as some form of adaptation. And so in those, the presentation of symptoms, really exploring when and why did this nervous system learn that they needed that adaptation? That is going to really orient us in the history that we're going to want to be exploring and finding more out about before we get into trauma processing. Mm So there are three main treatment approaches that we want to highlight for you guys to help you begin to make decisions about um, how to structure and carry your clients through the therapeutic process with EMDR. The first one is the acute crisis approach. This approach is recommended when a client does not have the desire or often it's the resources, meaning the time or the financial resources to do a more in-depth approach. Um, So this could happen if a client, for instance, was on scholarship and they have eight sessions and we got to make the most out of eight sessions. Sometimes there are very practical reasons why we have to limit uh, the work that we're going to do. So in that case, we might use this acute crisis approach. Uh, We may also use it when the situation is urgent or time sensitive. Um, One thing that we run into a lot here because of the town that we live in is a college student will come in on uh, summer break and they've got like three months and want to move through as much material as they can and then they're leaving again. (laughs) Um, So really practical situations like that can sometimes dictate that this acute crisis approach is going to be the best option. Um, So the focus in this approach is on relieving as much distress for a very small and specific experience that is being recurrently triggered in the client's life and causing them issues. So the point is that we want to make sure that we're only biting off a chunk that we can uh, manage and process in the allotted time that we have. Sometimes that means that it's just the specific incident, such as in an urgent situation, um, like a person just experienced a car wreck and they're having trouble driving. We may just focus on that one experience in life and not let it reprocess and um, associate to lots of other material because we don't have time for that. And so making this decision can be a very um, collaborative process with our clients and really exploring how broad do we want to let this get? How far are we going to let it go? And there may be good reason to keep it pretty tight and keep it very, very focused. So that's the first approach. The second approach is the clustered approach. And this is one that I feel like most people, uh, it was kind of emphasized in basic training of doing this clustered approach. Uh, Because a lot of clients will come into therapy saying, I need to work on 
self-esteem. <laughs> well, we're going to have to do more than one target, but that's not their entire life, right? Um, and so in this clustered approach, uh, we recommend it when the client has a very identified and specific area of their life that they're wanting to focus on. Rather than opening up to anything and everything from their history, we're going to stay focused on experiences that are very relevant contributors to that area that they're wanting to work on. So an example of that might be someone comes in and they're wanting to work on their self-confidence at work. Okay, so we might target multiple past events in their life that are connected to that issue. We might have some educational experiences from school. We might have past job experiences. We might have a few parental experiences sprinkled in there. But we're not doing the entirety of their history. We're just staying clustered around that main issue that they've decided to work on. We're working to resolve and integrate a whole memory network rather than just one or two specific incidences. We're looking at anything within that particular network that is connected to the issue. Um, and so it's, a, it's broader than that acute crisis approach. I see often in this um, cluster approach, there's different themes that may kind of help tap into that memory network. So it could be the association of a similar cognition um, I'm stupid. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's the association of similar like affect that mm -hmm. comes in or body sensation that kind of links these clusters of experiences into a similar memory network that then influence this um, pattern of symptoms or pattern of strategies that get employed in their present day life. Oftentimes utilizing the technique of float back is common in this approach. It's where we're taking a present day symptom and trying to trace back to mm -hmm. find what are those specific life experiences that are associated with this cluster. And then from there, we get to determine how do we sequence our approach and which targets we work on and when. Mm -hmm. The third approach to treatment is the developmental approach. And this is um, one that definitely takes the most time, um, requires the most resources. It is a more robust, full, comprehensive approach to treatment. So it's looking at through the developmental experiences of the human in front of you, of your client, what are all the significant moments that had direct influence in shaping the pattern of symptoms or the pattern of strategies that are showing up. Mm -hmm. So in this, we're not just tracing one theme of a memory network. We're looking at potentially targeting uh, multiple memory networks through a de de developmental approach. With clients in this, like I mentioned before, there has to be a commitment to the longer process of therapy. This is often used with clients who have complex trauma, um, trauma all throughout their development. It doesn't just fall in a single theme of I'm stupid, but they experience symptoms such as I'm stupid, I'm unlovable, I'm worthless, I'm not safe. It, it covers the category of negative cognitions and the body sensations are activated in multiple places and a lot of affect. So in this, it's it becomes more efficient to work developmentally than to chase each individual memory network. Um, where they're all kind of clustered together anyway. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's really relevant for this particular approach is this is necessarily the needed approach when we're working with someone that has very complex developmental mm -hmm. trauma. These are the folks that often we've we've heard that, well, they're not a good candidate for EMDR. And the reason why people um, have come to that conclusion is because we can't 
move through the basic protocol in a very direct way with this presentation and get good results because they don't have the needed adaptive networks present in their nervous system because their trauma was that significant. Mm -hmm. And so the developmental approach is a very titrated approach that helps us pendulate between heavy duty resourcing and then an, an amount of reprocessing that they can really handle and integrate and then back to resourcing again and we move gently back and forth between those two phases as needed to really support and carry them through that entire uh, therapeutic process because if we go too directly and too quickly we'll flood the system it'll be overwhelming to them and it really won't be effective because we're going to trigger their strategies which often include dissociation and when those strategies kick up that's when EMDR starts to not work as well at least the reprocessing portion of it um, and so this developmental approach walks us through being able to pendulate between the phases in a way that really makes uh, EMDR effective and gentle as possible for this population. Yeah, this can really help us highlight when working developmentally if we have trauma in a very early stage of development, let's say in toddler years or um, elementary years, if they don't have any adaptive resources specific mm -hmm. to that developmental stage, as we get into processing those memories, they won't have adaptive memory networks to yeah. integrate the trauma experience into. So some of your clients who have very complex trauma, you think of ages three to five, lacking any adaptive resource, we go in to process that and that's where we see our clients get stuck mm -hmm. and they're just looping in that place and they have nothing to borrow from to make sense of that experience in an adaptive way. Yeah. So with this approach, it can see more clearly the gaps of where do we need resources? We're no longer just borrowing from a generalized list of resources. We can very specifically and individually select resources that are gonna match this client's needs developmentally so that as we process the trauma, we can see the effects. Mm -hmm. So one of the, I would say, the most common questions that we get in consultation is around target sequencing. Would you agree with a that? Lot of questions, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an area that there's just a lot of uh, question and confusion around because in most basic trainings, there isn't a lot of emphasis put on how do we decide which target to focus on first, next, et cetera. And especially when we get into some of these more complex presentations, the basic idea of do the first, the worst, and the last, which is you know kind of a common trope in the EMDR world, that's not gonna work for them. Um, so we need a little bit more nuance and deep understanding of how do we target sequence according to our client's needs so that they really get the most benefit possible. Um, so if we're going to be using the acute crisis approach, the most efficient and effective way to resolve that distress is to process the past, the present, and the future connected with that presenting issue. But we have to remember to keep it as uh, restricted as needed so that their system can tolerate that without bringing in uh, any other material. If material does come up, we're going to contain that in the midst of reprocessing and then dialogue with our client about whether we want to come back and work on that material separately. But if we're doing that acute crisis approach, we're going to keep it very focused and not let it associate to other issues in life or other experiences to make sure that we don't flood the system uh, before they're really ready for that. So in this specific situation with the acute crisis approach, um, that process of doing the past, the present, and the future, but very restricted and tight, is usually a good way of sequencing the targets. So as an example of that, 
if somebody's coming in wanting to process a car wreck, the past might be the original car wreck, right? Or wrecks if there was a series of them. The present might be the distress of driving as it is currently experienced. And then the future would be a future template of driving successfully without anxiety or avoidance. That could be an acute crisis target sequencing treatment plan that would likely be very effective for that uh, desired goal. Mm -hmm. For the other two approaches, the clustered and the developmental approach, we recommend selecting targets for reprocessing based on the chronological development that they experienced, while also considering, as mentioned before, the resources that are present there for them. Mm -hmm. So as we move through in that fashion, we can kind of do the dance between resourcing and reprocessing in a way which is most supportive for our clients as they go through that. Um, we have talked a little bit before about this, but this is also where we're going to consider those low impact events mm -hmm. in sequencing the um, targets. So we're starting with that low impact as a way to ensure that the client is ready to move into that bigger material. Past that, we can move developmentally from earliest experiences on into most recent. We can also move in a progressive approach. Mm -hmm. So based on the level of disturbance that the client is experiencing now with that um, past memory, we can kind of shift and select targets based on that. So if that low impact went well, but we still feel a little uncertain, we may choose a, another lower impact that's still a part of the network that we're working on or the developmental time frame that we're working on and choose some of the lowest disturbance levels to clear first. As we clear those, they become now adaptive memory networks. And this all kind of prepares us for moving into something that is of higher disturbance level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with that progressive approach, one of the things that we're monitoring is their readiness and level of resourcing and also the level of safety and rapport that we have in our therapeutic mm -hmm. relationship. And if we feel nervous about moving into reprocessed material, or if we feel like we're not ready for that, that also guides what we need to focus on, right? Do we need to build more therapeutic alliance and more rapport and more safety in our connection between the two of us so that our relationship can help that work be supported? And do we need to resource to get them ready for that? Um, it is also really appropriate to have a collaborative conversation with our clients where we're asking them, what of these targets do you feel ready to work on, right? So the idea of working chronological can be very supportive, but if that doesn't feel good to the client, if that feels scary to them, it's really okay to work with them collaboratively and decide together which targets feel the most approachable to them and work based on their preference because that teaches them that their needs and their wishes and their, yeah, what, what feels most comfortable to them is going to be honored, that we want to take care of them. And that in and of itself is part of healing from trauma. So when we work this way, really honoring where the client system is at and titrating the experience for them to, to carry them gently through and only be working on material that they really feel prepared to work on, it doesn't mean that there won't be distress. It doesn't mean that it won't be a, an intense experience for them, but it means that they'll be able to move through it safely and that we as the therapist will feel very grounded in the work that we're doing and not be overwhelmed ourselves and not have that experience of our clients getting flooded and actually actually uh, being, yeah, really distressed by the process of their EMDR treatment. So this way of working keeps everybody in the Therapeutic Alliance safe and grounded throughout the process.
At Beyond Healing, we draw from three specific theoretical approaches to help conceptualize our cases. And when we lay these three theoretical approaches over each other, what emerges is a really holistic picture that clearly shows our therapeutic path. Here at Beyond Healing, we call that way of looking at our cases somatic integration and processing. And we've built a whole case conceptualization model around it, which lots of you guys have heard us talk about. But we find beautiful synchrony between somatic integration and processing and EMDR. So we want to share this with you guys so it can benefit your EMDR practice. As we talk about this today, we want to give just a brief overview of the three different theoretical orientations that we have synthesized to build the somatic integration and processing model. We have a full three-day robust training that goes deep into the details of each of these and how we actually apply it to our cases, but just for the sake of overview, to give you an idea of what we're drawing from as we conceptualize these cases here at Beyond. The first approach is looking at attachment and neurodevelopment. So, you know, historically we've had this long debate of nature versus nurture. We're setting that aside and saying really it's both and looking at the combination of both nature and nurture and how we understand the dance between these two um, experiences as an individual and how they begin to form a person, a person, their traits, qualities, personality, and how all of that influences and shapes their existence in the present. So from the moment of conception, all throughout pregnancy, throughout birth, and the beginning of those early developmental phases, we see personality being developed. The genetic lineage and active experiences begin to blend together. So we've got the play of both genetics and environmental influences, and those attachment experiences work together to form and shape this person. Our brains develop in an experience-dependent fashion throughout the lifespan. So it is based on these experiences that we have in these formative years that really begin to shape and really um, create the, the development of our brain and our nervous system. We'll often use a metaphor of a house and looking at um, the structure of this house being built on a foundation. And so we've got the roof and the, the, the walls, all that structure built on that foundation. And it is those early life experiences that being the foundational piece and that the concept of self and other are built upon that. So however that foundation, however stable or unstable that is, influences how stable the structure of the home will be. This really connects directly with um, the process of EMDR as we're always looking back to what are those early life experiences, those developmental milestones, and how did that influence who they are today in the present? So the early life experiences lay the foundation on which later structural development will unfold, giving way to the emergence of self and other. Another lens that we look through in SIP is the lens of somatic psychology. Um, somatic psych focuses on really correcting our dualistic thinking in regard to mind and body. Uh, for a long time, it was kind of traditional um, to, to think about the mind and the body being very separate from each other. Neurobiologically, that is incredibly inaccurate <laughs> and not helpful for us to imagine the mind somehow being separate and disconnected from this fleshy thing that we live in. And so in somatic psych, we really bring that back together and begin to understand how the visceral cellular experiences of the human body influence everything about what it means for us to be a human being. 
any separation between the mind and body is just an illusion of our language, but it's not an experienced reality. Sometimes in therapy, we kind of have to talk that way because we're exploring different aspects of what it means to live life as a human being. But that dualism is really just an illusion. And it's helpful to remember that anytime that we're working with trauma and EMDR. Being aware of this allows us to really see our work with our clients through the lens of the body so that we can include the body's natural intelligence, its activation patterns, and, and its ways of communicating in our work with our clients. There's a ton of valuable information in their body. And when we know how to interact with that and listen to it, it is tremendously helpful to guide our work and really bring the trauma release that we're looking for to a much deeper level. Working body to body is another thing that we really emphasize. It means that we actually include our own body, the body of the therapist, which is a little different than a lot of people talk about it. But our own body in the therapeutic process is also giving us a lot of information, right? We're sitting there with sensations and activations and intuitions happening in our guts, right? All of that, we believe that we can include in the process and reflect with our client on what that might mean for whatever we're working on. The human nervous system does not easily differentiate between a true threat of bodily harm or death and a social and emotional threat. And that is incredibly important because when we understand that, that a emotional or social threat can actually register like a death threat to the human body, we begin to see why we get the big reactions that we do and the impacts that we do from relational and attachment trauma. Those can be just as damaging, especially when we're young and incredibly dependent, right? To be disconnected from other people is deadly to us when we're young. And so our body is very concerned about maintaining those connections. So understanding how the body is processing our experiences really helps us make sense of what we see in trauma reactions and how to help our clients understand their own reactions and really de-shame what they're seeing. So working with this awareness of trauma's direct impact on the body and on the nervous system really assists in guiding our clients to be able to release that distress that's stored in our body and help us uh, choose interweaves and targets and ways of working that are going to bring the deepest uh, release possible for them. The third pillar of our case conceptualization model is really founded in adaptive information processing. So this is something you're probably pretty familiar with at this point. But just as a way to review that and really start looking at how does that, um, the adaptive information processing model really come to play as we're conceptualizing what's going on for our clients. So with AIP, we state that most symptoms or struggles come directly from past life experiences that have not yet been fully processed. These experiences set into motion, that's this pattern of affect, behavior, cognition, and identity structures, that those then continue throughout the lifespan unless something else intervenes. So as we have these experiences in life that aren't yet fully processed, um, they then kind of have this domino effect. And that's where we see clients coming in to work with us with these, what we call symptoms, but really just looking at that from the lens of this is unprocessed trauma or earlier life experiences that are still influencing them today. Our experiences are held in the brain and the body in a state-specific form. So this is, again, where that connection of mind-body comes to play. This means that our body and brain both remember 
the sensory elements of the experience along with the story that we tell ourselves about the experience. The sensory elements of our memories can be activated in the present. We often hear that referred to as like being triggered, but something in the present environment activates the system to re, re um, kind of bring back up those old patterns of responses because that's what was necessary at the time of the original experience. This can happen unintentionally. It's often referred to as triggering and it can happen or it can happen intentionally for the sake of the therapeutic process. So in EMDR, we're looking at really intentionally going in and reactivating the way that those experiences have been stored in that state-dependent fashion. So we're inviting the body to come back to that place of feeling what the experience was like at the time. And then we're going in and trying to reprocess that experience. When the past is activated by something in the present, our nervous system responds with the same response patterns that were used during the original trauma. We want to talk a little bit about the history taking process with EMDR therapy. We have so many different tools and ways in which we can actually collect history for our clients, but the important pieces that we really want to emphasize here is that this is an ongoing process. So whether you're a private practice or agency or you have a structured way in which you have to take history, we can you know, check those boxes and get a lot of information there at the front, but then we want to be adding to those documents and even just our own awareness and understanding of their history all throughout the therapeutic journey. So we can get a lot of information initially through more like an interview style, asking questions, but there's pieces of history that will come out over time. And that may be as a result of, you know, we're doing new resourcing in EMDR. And so we get new glimpses into what the client has or maybe doesn't have in terms of resources or adaptive networks. It may come out through reprocessing as we're working on targets. As we clear one target, new information may be able to emerge after that. And so there's new history there. It can also come out through what the body is communicating. History isn't always reported just through language, just through their story. It can be um, detected in how we're experiencing as a therapist, our relationship with the client, patterns that we notice in how they respond to us or other people around them. So just remembering that the history taking is an ongoing process that's constantly evolving and we're updating our understanding of their history by how it's showing up here in the present. Another key component is that new history can emerge once safety is established. So if the client um, doesn't yet, their nervous system doesn't yet feel safe enough in the therapeutic experience, not even from an intentional way of omitting information, it may be just kind of subconsciously held there until there's enough safety established that it can move into their conscious awareness that they could even begin to share and express that with us. And one of the ways that that can play out is if there's a lot of dissociation in the system, which in the presence of trauma there often is. And so that dissociation can actually block material from the client's awareness. So as Jen is saying, as that safety increases, the need for that dissociation to keep that material away will lessen and things will hopefully gently emerge. Sometimes that can happen in a pretty uncomfortable way. If you've heard the term flooding, that's what that's actually referring to. 
But if we're doing a good job of going slowly and really monitoring the client's safety, hopefully that material can emerge gently. And as the client is ready to be aware of it, and as we are ready to work on it with the client. So the number one thing that we're always monitoring when it comes to history taking is always inviting the client to share as much as they feel safe and ready to share and not pushing their system to disclose before they have that sense of safety and relationship with us and in their own body to be talking about things that have happened to them. And that's one of the ways that we keep people very safe in the history taking process and making sure that we're working on targets that are appropriate for their level of resourcing and uh, adaptability at that point in the process. So it's really important that we're always listening for what's not being said along with what they choose to focus on in the stories that they tell us. Sometimes it's that that gives us some indications of where we might need to go in the future and things that don't quite feel safe yet, but are still really relevant in us understanding what's going on for our clients. So that can emerge in things like, huh, isn't it interesting that the client never talks about their mother? <laughs> because mom is usually pretty relevant, but where is she in the story? Now we may ask that and then observe, how does a client talk about that? Do they kind of just skim the surface and move on really quickly? Does it bring up activation? All of that information is really relevant in the history taking process. But no matter what, we're always telling the client, you only need to share what feels safe to share right now. So the way that they share their story and what they decide and uh, decide not to share is going to be just as important to us. And we're going to take notes on that as well, because that is revealing the strategies that their previous life has necessitated for them, right? Whatever we go through, we develop strategies to deal with those challenges. And history taking, it's actually more important for us to be curious about the strategies that they developed and the ways that they've survived than the actual details of what happened to them. Because that's the stuff that we end up encountering and reprocessing a lot more than the details of the story itself. So we're always listening for the strategy that was developed and whatever challenge uh, they faced, especially when they were young. Why was that adaptation created? Why did they show up with the personality that they did? Why did they learn to uh, use these skills the way that they did? Why did their body choose to dissociate? All of that is relevant for the history taking process. So we want to do a review of the different treatment approaches. We've already taught a pretty uh, thorough description of these. So we just want to hit the highlights of this just to refresh it, because this is one of the areas where I would say we get the most questions um, in consultation and in training. So this is an area that we like to hit more than once uh, to really help you guys uh, deepen your understanding of how to use these three different treatment approaches. So the first treatment approach that we'll highlight is the acute crisis approach. To be honest, this is not an approach that we end up using very often, but we do want to know how to use it if the time comes where we need to. So this approach is recommended when the client does not have the desire or the resources that could be either the time resource or the financial resources to do a more in-depth approach. Um, it could also be used in a situation where there's an urgent or very time-sensitive situation, meaning they need to do something like next week, right? <laughs> um, and they need help with it right now. And so when we're working under those kinds of constraints, then this approach can be really useful. An example could be that a client is only able to meet maybe five times, and then they're going to be deployed for active duty and be overseas for many months. That is not the time that we're going to open up a whole bunch of material. So we're going to keep it very focused. 
The focus with the acute and crisis approach is just on relieving as much distress for a very small and specific experience that is being recurrently triggered in the client's life and causing them distress. Uh, Another example could be a client coming in saying, I am having terrible anxiety driving on the freeway. Okay, I can't work on all of the other stuff, but I just need to be able to drive on the freeway. Okay, and so we might use this very focused approach to help them with that very specific goal. Another approach to the treatment plan is a more clustered approach. We see this much more often, at least as a starting place in looking at how do we begin with our clients. So this is when a client comes in wanting to focus on a specific area or aspect of their life, maybe um, a pressing symptom that's really um, disruptive in their day-to-day life or a certain belief system that's really disruptive. We find a way to kind of cluster and track back with this information in the present, what are the specific grouping of past experiences that need to be reprocessed to see that symptom or belief system start to change and be alleviated? So rather than opening up their entire history and going through and getting a thorough understanding of every trauma they've ever experienced, we're starting with, um, it's almost, I think of it like fishing, right? We've got the bait from the present and we go fishing to find what else is out there, what's going to grab onto that bait. So as we track back and find what are those experiences directly associated with the present situation, those will be the targets that we will work on rather than working on all traumatic experiences of their past. So an example of this would be if a client comes in wanting to work on feeling more confident at work. Maybe they want to apply for a promotion and they're just not feeling secure enough or confident enough. We can start to look at that specific event and say what past experiences or group of experiences have contributed to that felt sense of insecurity, um, inadequacy, however that shows up for them in that setting. And that could trace back to other work experiences. It could trace back to even earlier of a cluster of childhood experiences. But we're staying within that same theme and focus rather than opening it up. So in this approach, we are working to resolve and integrate an entire memory network rather than just one or two specific incidences. So where the acute or crisis approach is looking at that single event, we're looking at clearing and integrating a full memory network. Um, And then we will talk about the other approach, more developmental, or we go even more broad than that. Mm -hmm. One thing to know uh, with that clustered approach is that um, we often end up using a float back in order to kind of trace back, like Jen is saying, into what are the experiences that are most relevant. Um, And a float back can be really useful right there. So if you're um, fuzzy on a float back and you want to use a cluster approach, make sure you kind of review how to do a float back um, before you do that treatment planning, because very likely you will want to use that in some point. You can do it through direct questioning, but that flowback is really an essential skill um, if we want to do that really efficiently. So the last of the three approaches that we want to talk about is the developmental approach. And I would say this approach is the one that Jen and I probably end up using the most, partly because of the way that we do case conceptualization, but also because we really find it to be the most thorough um, for most clients' goals when they come in. 
It really allows us to look at the whole situation. We're inviting any of their life experiences that are relevant to their current distress and saying this might be something that we're going to target. So it's recommended and often necessary for clients that have a complex presentation and a significant uh, attachment trauma in their history which is the majority of our clients, to be honest. (laughs) Um, And so knowing how to do this very developmental approach is part of how we make EMDR accessible and appropriate for complex cases. Sometimes in our basic training, there's sort of this feeling of EMDR isn't a good fit for these very complex cases. But doing EMDR this way makes it a great fit and very, very effective. So the nature of this kind of trauma necessitates a slower um, and a much more titrated approach. So in the developmental approach, we're going to be slowing down the whole process and really, really focusing on the client's safety throughout, making sure that we're paying close attention to the level of resourcing as we open up any new material. And we're going to pendulate a lot between reprocessing and resourcing. Clients with this presentation are going to require a lot more resourcing. So we're going to go a lot farther than calm, safe place and container, Um, even farther than a nurturing figure and a protective figure. We're going to resource them uh, kind of constantly, right? It's going to be something that we're always keeping an eye on because their system missed out on a lot of the natural resourcing that other people had. So this is the way that we help them move through their trauma reprocessing and memory reconsolidation process a lot more successfully because we're adding in adaptive material as we're working to reprocess the maladaptive material. This approach can be utilized with with really anyone, but it becomes quite critical and essential for those cases that cannot necessarily tolerate just a single incident trauma reprocessing or even a cluster approach. That as we get into try to process a single incident or a cluster, we notice they have no adaptive networks to draw from to be able to work through and process and integrate that cluster of experiences in an adaptive way. So those clients that just feel like we're stuck or we keep hitting these blocks that they don't have the resources that they need we're going to shift more into this developmental approach. And as Melissa is talking about, it's a much slower, more patient approach. And it really, um, it always takes us back to those very early developmental experiences. So it's always taking us back to early childhood and looking at what are those attachment experiences, what needs were not met, what attachment ruptures occurred, um, and what um, resources were lacking for this individual in their development that then shaped their understanding of themselves and the world around them. That then every experience after that was processed or stored as they made sense of it through the lenses that they were developing early on through that childhood trauma. So in this type of work, as we're doing this, um, the dance between resourcing and trauma reprocessing is just critical. It is really significant to know in this approach that we're not just checking the box on resourcing, but it's a constant dance back and forth between. And that really the therapeutic alliance is going to be one of your most critical resources um, that we're going to lean upon. And so just by having this relationship between client and therapist, that can be a safe relationship where they can feel seen and validated and nurtured in that, that is going to be a huge piece in building adaptive networks as we're doing the work. 
So we emphasize that specifically in the resourcing piece of looking at relationship between therapist and client and draw back to that as an adaptive network and something to draw from as they try to make sense of those earlier experiences. So once we've decided what treatment approach we're going to use, the next big question is how do we sequence our targets? We get a lot of questions about um, what targets to do first and how do you decide where to go um, in, in sequencing what targets you're picking. Um, so we want to give you some indication of general guidelines of how to make those clinical decisions. So if you're using the acute crisis approach, the most efficient and effective way to process that is by uh, resolving the distress of the past, the present, and then working on the future connected to that presenting issue. So an example can be helpful to think about this. Um, in the example of a car wreck, the past would be the original car wreck that started the distress. So that would be the first target that we process. After that, we would look at the distress of driving currently. So when is their distress the highest? Is it when they're at an intersection, when they're on the freeway, um, when they're trying to make a left turn, if that's when the wreck happened? So after we've done the past, then we would look at those triggering moments in the present that continue to kick up that distress. Once we've resolved that, we would move on to doing future template work on getting them ready to drive without distress again. That's a really effective progression for that acute crisis approach. As we look at the other two approaches, the cluster approach and the developmental approach, we recommend selecting targets for reprocessing based on the chronological development of how they were experienced as long as the client is resourced enough. So again, we're gonna take that same approach of past, present, and then future into the reprocessing with the exception and the caveat that if a client cannot tolerate that order, if their nervous system cannot tolerate or become overactivated, they exceed their window of tolerance by going into the past, chronologically, their earliest experiences, that touchstone experience, then we're gonna modify it. So we, we know that we need to have the nervous system within that window of tolerance to be able to do any kind of work. So to start with a target that it feels safe enough to them. It's the most um, effective and efficient way to go earliest and then move through chronologically. But if we need to modify that, we can still see great results from that. So in that case, we may start with something that's low, a lower impact event something that is, you know, on the scale of the sud scale, like a four or five rather than the touchdown memory, which may be a 10. So we can kind of, I use the language of like chip away at these, this memory network. If we're using that cluster approach and we have six memories there, we may strategically select things that are lower to build up the tolerance to go into those um, higher disturbance events. If the client themselves is not resourced enough to work in that way of past, present, future, we may shift into more resourcing. We may start with a small target and then move into additional resources, then move back to trying another bigger target. So as we do that resourcing and we process those smaller events, then we can build up the ability to go in and target those bigger events 
the thing that we always want to keep track of is that as we're working on the past, we need to connect that and integrate that into their present experience, as well as completing it with a future template where they're able to imagine themselves interacting with a what would have been previously activating experience, but having a new founded um, adaptive perception over that an ability to feel grounded or feel safe, feel calm in that experience. Mm-hmm. So this allows us to have a very progressive approach that is really honoring to what the client is able to handle. And it gives them a lot of empowerment throughout the process, which is also very healing for them to feel cared for throughout and not pushed to do things that they're not ready for. So it's honoring their readiness, their level of resourcing, and choosing targets collaboratively. Sometimes the best way to choose a target is to say, what do you want to work on? (laughs) What feels the most approachable today? That's often a phrase I use. Out of all of the targets that we could work on, that we have, you know, put on our list, what target feels the most approachable today? Because there may be certain areas that while the distress is high, they feel more ready to tackle those current issues. So be collaborative with your clients. Don't feel like it has to be all on you to decide what target is the one for the day. Let that be a, a discussion that you're having that's very empowering to your clients and it helps them have a lot of ownership of the process. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.